This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There is a lot that I find fascinating about artificial intelligence. I mean, things that are, yes, interesting, but also things and a lot of things that I feel like we need to be wary about. Like more and more, we hear the discussion about AI and religion. Because of AI being all-knowing, will people turn to it the way they turn to a deity, perhaps? I mean, think about the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. You can see why some people would start to look to artificial intelligence maybe for those kinds of questions and answers, right? And this is something that a lot of religious scholars also think about. Is this dangerous? Is this something that people welcome? What what do we need to think about when we start to use and see more artificial intelligence out there like this? Well, Michael Korn is with us now to talk about that. The author of 18, yes, 18 books, a contributing columnist for the Toronto Star and also appears regularly in the Globe and Mail and a priest with the Anglican Church of Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Is this something that you are starting to think more and more about? It's interesting you asked that because I hadn't really. And then the editor of the Warris emailed me and said, would you want to write a piece about this? So I never turn any work down. So I said I would. And I began to research it and consider it. And I mean, I think every aspect of society, AI is an issue. But when it comes to religion, particularly so, because it's about the unknown, isn't it? It's, it's evolving as we speak. I mean, we don't know what artificial intelligence will look like the end of this year, let alone in two or three years' time. And, and people who are of faith, religious people, I mean, they vary, but often they are searching for something. And that's a good thing. It's good to search, but it can also mean that you are grasping for something too. And yes, AI can present answers. Uh, an entity that has access to all the world's information pretty much on the internet that can increasingly just replicate uh, a person's face, uh, a very, an attractive person, a compelling person, seems to have all of the answers. There are some things it can't do at this stage, but when will that change? So there's opportunity, but there's also danger. And I don't think we should be hysterical about it. Not a science fiction movie. It doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. But a lot of experts in the field have said, be very careful here, because at what point does it go beyond our control. And I mean, look at any aspect of social media. Look at Twitter, for example, going through its own problems right now. But incredible place for communication, but also a terrible place for abuse and insult. It is natural. It's almost like human nature, though, isn't it, to look for answers somewhere. Like we have seen that throughout human history. And it does feel like only natural that if there is this all-knowing thing that is giving people answers, there will be people who perhaps rely a little bit too much on that. I think it's inevitable. I mean, I, I, I find myself, I have to break away from my laptop. I'm on it too often, just Googling things that are of rel- relative interest but don't really matter very much. So, yes, they were, people have always, as you say, looked for answers, and often in the very worst places. 
there's enough dictators, enough history of despots and, and genocide to know that. Even organized religion, let's not pretend we have, have clean hands on this. Organized religion has often acted in the most appalling way, and, and people have believed and forgiven uh, simply because it's in the name of religion. So we have no idea what artificial intelligence will look like. I mean, certainly, if someone was dishonest, they could present online. And a lot of, a lot of churches are now online because of what happened during COVID. They could present a service online where the person preaching and explaining and instructing wasn't a real person. And they seem to have complete and utter knowledge of the Bible, because that's right there on, on, on the Internet. Um, and we, we've, we've seen how they can appear to be real. Now, at the moment, generally, when, they, when these things are tried, you can see through them. But I would think in a few years, we won't actually know the difference. But there's something more so it's profound on that, and that is even revering something which someone knows is artificial intelligence. Yes, it is artificial, but it has all of this knowledge and it seems to be full of compassion and it has so many answers. And that takes the place of, in my case, it will be God, but for other people, it could be any sort of thing that they rely on. There are all, there, I would say this, there are far more questions now than we have answers. Uh, isn't also the part of the problem here, Michael, is that we race headfirst into these things and we tend to ask later. We ask questions later or we worry about the side effects later. We seem to be in a race right now to develop more and more artificial intelligence. Does that make you wary? Yeah, very much so. Well, it's a market, isn't it? We live in a market economy and 24-hour news. We say things in the news and they turn out not to be true because if you check them, then you can be the second or the third rather than the the first person on the scene. Now, thankfully, there are experts and authorities who have warned about this. There are two or three major players who said, be very careful, take your time. But I don't know if people will take their time because if something is available, it will then be marketed. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a world without the internet and without cell phones and so on. And if you speak to younger people now, they look at you as though there's something wrong with you. What do you mean? <laughs> what sort of world? Well, in 10 years' time, what will be the assumed nature of, of, of culture and communication and religion? Will it be based around artificial intelligence? I don't know, but possibly. And as you say, we have to be very wary of this. Right, but I don't think, are we wary enough? I don't know. Um, I mean, as I say, people are warning about it, but I suppose government will get involved. It has got involved to a certain degree right now, but then government doesn't always get it right. We know that uh, well enough. So, um, I mean, we have as people to uh, be aware, and that can be difficult because the problem is we're made aware by media. Media is under increasing pressure. And what about uh, artificial intelligence influencing media? We know that has happened, I and mean, we know how bots and bot farms influence communication on social media. Well, that's that means it's very difficult to sometimes know the truth. Right. You mentioned that, you know, these these bots, these, you know, artificial intelligence can appear online and and seem very knowledgeable about scripture, knowledgeable about the Bible. Do you feel yeah. sometimes that that is all it takes then? If, if, if there is an authority that feels knowledgeable about the Bible, then people will start to listen. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a priest. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a service in about half an hour and we have the Eucharist, we have communion, we believe in the apostolic succession as Anglicans, as do Catholics and, and many others. There is that personal contact. A lot of the work I do is sitting with people in hospitals and care homes who are in great pain and suffering. And I don't think that can ever be completely duplicated. But in other areas, 
possibly so. I mean, it's not just knowledge of the Bible, obviously, but when someone has that, and but you, you can AI can also replicate humor and the personal touch. I mean, of course, it, it's exponential that the more it understands, the more it understands. Um, so I even now what we're considering probably will seem like the dark ages in a few years time. It would have developed to such a point. You're so right about that. Listen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about that today. Anytime. My pleasure. It is so fascinating. That is Michael Corrin, author of 18 books, uh, priest with the Anglican Church of Canada, contributing columns for the Toronto Star, Globe Mail, you name it. But talking about religious issues and artificial intelligence. And this, this does you know, really start to fascinate me here because think about the, even the advent of television. Remember with those first televangelists, there must have been debate and discussion about that too. Like, oh, can you do that on TV? Is it the same as going to church and having that commitment? And now we're talking about, is this the same having AI preach to you online? Is that still the same thing as going to church and communing with, you know, religion. And is it going to get too far along before we start to think that maybe this isn't a good idea, right? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're in Japan. Why are you watching videos? Just using my phone to find our next meal. What's that? Let's find out. With my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra, I can circle it with the S Pen and search right in the app. It looks like it's called Takoyaki. Tofu! Actually, it's fried octopus. <laughs> I knew that. Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I needed to hear that this morning. That sounds so good. And maybe it just gets you up and going. And you know what? These days we need that, especially if you are quiet quitting at work, which I think a lot of people are doing. Our contributor, Scott Shantz, is with us for more on that. Scott, I know you're not doing this. Oh, definitely. Never. Never, ever would I consider doing something like this. Okay, good to know. This is abhorrent behavior, quiet quitting. Oh, whoa, whoa. Abhorrent behavior? Some people just might hate their job, Scott. Yeah, but I mean, okay. Well, what if you have a terrible boss and you have no options and like, what are you supposed to do? Okay, I was just trying to make a case for the fact that I would, that I would never do this, that I would never do this. But uh, clearly there's a lot of people that are. There's some new research out recently that's talking a lot about uh, burnout and office burnout and quiet quitting and stuff. Six in 10 employees, this is a global survey, 60% of the global workforce report quiet quitting, which is not, uh, if you haven't heard the term, if you're not familiar with the term, it kind of became popularized over the last maybe sort of like uh, two years, year and a half around COVID, that essentially uh, you, you don't actually quit your job. You just take the advice of one Homer Simpson. You don't like your job. You don't strike. 
You just go in every day and do it really half-assed. That people are doing <laughs> that. There's always a Homer Simpson I know. Quote. I know. He's like a, a mentor for our modern times. Uh, a, a wise sage, maybe. I don't know. But people are doing that. They're just going in and doing basically just the bare minimum. Nothing extra. No overtime. Because they're burned out. Uh, they say that one in, th- one in three people have left a job due to burnout, and one in four employers are having a hard time actually retaining employees. And we see this, like, you know, workplaces and, and things are, are shutting down or, or, you know, limiting their services because they don't have enough employees to actually do the service that they're doing. And a big reason for this, they say, is employee burnout. And one of the interesting things is workplaces are trying to address this but they really, they don't know how. how. Like, how do you address that even? Yeah, and one of the things that, uh, that has been suggested is like, oh, well, we'll pay our employees more money. Nope, that's not it. A lot of employees are saying, look, it's not about the money. I'll even take less money if I can find a positive sort of work-life balance. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're, we're constantly engaged. We're constantly connected. You know, you leave the office and you feel like, I got to check my email. I need to find out if something happened. Um, to- they, they're calling it toxic work culture, where you're, you feel like your boss is sort of always there and you're always expected to be, quote unquote, on call. Right. And so this is people's way of coping with that is to, and like whether it's not checking your emails, whether drawing a hard line, like in some cases, Scott, I feel like this isn't a bad thing. Like if you need to protect yourself from burnout, then then do it. Yeah, I do think so. And I think for employers too, they need to also see it as that because you could have, you know, if we're having an, a, an issue with maintaining employees and keeping employees in the workforce, it's better to have them there doing the bare minimum than not there at all. And I also think that saying the bare minimum is probably the wrong word for it. We need to kind of address that because they're doing what the job description is. Quiet quitting is it's just none of the none of the above and beyond. And the idea is that it's like, hey, I showed up, I did what I was supposed to do, and now I'm going home. Right. Okay. And you still say you would never do this. Never. Never, Simmy. <laughs> You? Would you? I don't know. I, like I would, we all have a boss. I, first of all, I try not to say never. I try never say never because you just don't know the circumstances that sure. that pop up, right? And in this industry in particular, you know, new managers come in or take over. I remember working for one TV station that we knew was up for sale. We actually got put into like a trusteeship waiting for somebody to buy us. Okay. At that point, your boss isn't your boss or isn't going to stay your boss. Like you don't know what's happening and it's very hard to stay motivated. And with everything employees have been through, I mean, if you need to protect yourself sometimes, obviously things can go too far. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say this is necessarily a bad thing for some people. Sure. I guess whatever, whatever gets you through it, right? I think it's up to employers now to sort of take a little more stock of how their employees That's it are right doing. there. Yeah. That's it. Like, be careful, be careful what you wish for. You cut things back and you cut things back and then you wonder where did productivity go? You got it. That's, I think, where the warning is. Scott, thank you. Sure thing. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time to dive into what's going on in BC politics with the help of Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. They get knocked down and they get up again. What a great song to lead into a discussion of the latest from our troubled ferry corporation. So let's see, where shall we start? Well, we just had another bad long weekend. So there's been two and... 
the May one went badly, and the uh, July the first uh, long weekend went badly. And the minister made himself available to the media yesterday, Rob Fleming, and hey, you know what? He says the New Democrats have to respect the independents. Really? Since when? Ferry. <laughs> so let's see. They rewrote the legislation that runs the Ferry Corporation. They sent in an N- a former NDP cabinet minister as chair of the board. She fired a CEO who had angered the premier's office and paid a million and a half in severance, installed her guy as CEO, but they don't like to interfere in the independence. They've done nothing but interfere in the independence of the ferry corporation. So the minister was uh, on the line yesterday. What's going to happen next? Are we going to have another bad long weekend uh, coming up? Uh, you noted, Simi, BC Day long weekend is usually the busiest of the year. It sure is. And it also, from everything that it sounds like, particularly from the CEO, BC Ferries, it say this is going to be bad before it gets better. Yeah, he says that. Uh, the minister yesterday, however, Rob Fleming said, We're going to do better next time, he said. It is up to the CEO and his team to do better next time. Uh, So I guess that's as close to putting down a marker as you can, uh, allowing for the fact that the minister really doesn't like to interfere in BC Ferry Corporations. But it does sound like he's told the corporation and Jimenez, uh, okay, you're the team, you're in charge, and you better make sure that we don't have a repeat of this next weekend because, Simi, the way the New Democrats have interfered, all the while denying they're doing it, means they're taking the political heat for what happened on the weekend. Fleming's a member for a riding in the provincial capital region, so Vancouver Island MLAs take more heat about the ferries than anybody because the ferries are absolutely central to transportation and the tourist industry on Vancouver Island. Does that mean that there's no big fix coming here, that there's no more money coming for things well, like, oh, we need to improve the shipbuilding industry, all those things that Nicholas Jimenez talked about? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. And uh, our friend Rob Shaw asked about this yesterday. The Ferry Corporation has this staff shortage issue, which we all know about. And one of the things the corporation has said is, we're going to have a wage reopener. So they have a contract. You're under no obligation with a contract to reopen wage negotiations. But the Ferry Corporation has said, we're going to do that. We're going to reach out to the union and we're going to go back to the table and we're going to try to sweeten the pay rates and benefits at the corporation in order to make it easier to attract uh, workers because there's a shortage of workers. Well, so, so Shaw asked the minister yesterday, is the government going to put more money on the table to pay for the extra cost of recruiting all those workers with a richer contract? Uh, Fleming said no. He said, we've already given BC Ferries clear your throat, half a billion dollars to 
see them through uh, all the troubles they have ahead. And they're going to have to pay for any wage increases out of that, just as they're going to have to pay for recruitment. The government stepped in, Simi, uh, gave them $500 million to stave off the need to increase fares by, hmm, I think the estimate was 10%. So the province is, uh, I guess, as close as you can say to... The minister's patience has run out with BC Ferries, and BC Ferries has been put on notice. They're going to have to do better. Oh, boy. Okay, and since you're talking to the transportation minister, then we should also ask about the the port strike, even though that's a federal responsibility. Yeah, that's the first thing Rob Fleming said when he was asked about it yesterday, but he acknowledged that it's having a huge and a, a... huge impact, a huge disruption on the BC economy already. So what does he want done about it? Well, that's where he stopped short. Uh, You know, there's a lot of calls out there for uh, the federal government's going to have to step in, as they did in the port strike in Montreal, and settle it. They're going to have to put everybody back to work. It's just too much impact on the Canadian economy. That's not what Fleming said. He's a dutiful New Democrat. The New Democrats uh, federally are opposed to federal intervention. The union is opposed to Ottawa intervening. They want negotiations, and that's the BC NDP position. Back to the bargaining table. Fair deal at the bargaining table. Um, I... When you think about it, he really couldn't say anything all that different. Right. As you know, the BC NDP government has been failing to intervene for three and a half months on the Fraser Valley transit strike. Now, that doesn't have as big an impact on the economy, obviously, as the port strike, but it does have an impact on the poor people that were relying on the bus service in the Fraser Valley. So the government has sent in the famous Vince Reddy to try to sort it out, and that's one thing a government can do. But I think, Simi, the calls here in B.C. for federal intervention are going to increase. I think Ottawa is going to have to step in maybe as soon as later this week. And Vaughn, I'm glad to hear that we were also hearing from Health Minister Adrian Dix because I've been wondering about that, especially with this whole shortage of transplant doctors. Yeah, Simi, you did the story on that earlier and had an interview on it. Uh, There is a shortage of transplant doctors in the province. Uh, We're actually, this is pretty discouraging, British Columbians who've donated their kidneys, the kidneys are being shipped out of province because there's no ability to do the surgery here in British Columbia. So uh, Dix got asked about this yesterday. It was a a healthcare announcement that he'd scheduled uh, upgrade to the hospital in Williams Lake. And, you know, he is very good at his job and he knows it in fine details, Dix does, but he's also very good at sidestepping. So he gets asked the kidney transplant question and he says, well, first line of defense, of course, with New Democrats is always, well, we're doing better than the previous BC Liberal government was doing. Okay, all right, you've been government for six years, that's wearing thin. Uh, second line of defense, he says, hey, you know, we've hired an awful lot of nurses, yes, and some of them do help with transplants, but it really doesn't address the question. And he says, okay, well, you know, we need a health care human resources plan. And they announced one last fall, but it's a plan, right? It, it, it isn't dealing with the problem we have today. And nobody's saying it's something you can solve overnight, but the problem has built up for a while. So other than saying we're dealing with it, we're looking into it, we're going to try to fix it, uh, not much in the way of any kind of relief on the issue. 
the problem is going to continue, judging from what Adrian Dick said yesterday. It's another one of those, oh, this is going to take time to fix. But yeah. you've got to wonder at what point the public is going to go, you know what, I'm tired of hearing that. Yeah, I mean, the opinion polling on this stuff so far, Simi, is very encouraging for the New Democrats. You had an Angus Reid poll last week that indicated that people are uh, very unhappy on a bunch of issues. Uh, Health care waiting, uh, the economy, cost of living, housing affordability, uh, public safety issues. I mean, the same issues we've been covering again and again. The coverage has reflected that, and public opinion is reflecting that. But then when you get to the question of if an election were called today, which it's not being done, how would you vote? They would reelect the NDP. So clearly the public is more patient. I would say, Simi, I've not seen the public this patient on major issues in many a year. Usually, British Columbians are just pretty damned impatient and noisy. And if they think the government hasn't lived up to its record in, what, six years, uh, they're starting to talk about voting for the opposition. I would blame some of that on the opposition, which hasn't done a very good job and is busy rebranding itself. I think it also indicates a public patience. And as long as people are patient, this is the kind of answers you're going to get on stuff. I guess so, too. Also wanted to ask you about what is going on with this medically-assisted dying at St. Paul's. Yeah, uh, Dick's got asked about that as well by my colleague Katie DeRosa of Vancouver Sun, and there's a piece in the paper today about his answer. That one, Dix says the government is going to deal with that. He says the health ministry is dealing with it. They're in conversations with St. Paul's and with Providence Health, the overseer organization that looks at St. Paul's. He says, look, uh, medically, uh, medical assistance in dying is the law in Canada. It's part of our health care system system and British Columbians need to be able to access it. So uh, I get the feeling he's in talks. He didn't say what the solution is, but I don't think he's got as much patience as he expects the public to have on the transplant issue uh, with St. Paul's and Providence. They're going to have to find a way to provide that particular medical services the way I took Dix's comments yesterday. I'm really surprised that it's taken this long to, to do that. Yeah, it's a case that cropped up, right? There was a woman who, as my recollection is, someone tried to access it at St. Paul's and got turned away. And, uh, you know, it may have happened before, but the publicity around that issue was what brought it to the forefront, and the government is now responding. It's, I mean... It's a clash of cultural values, right? If you look at it, um, it's been an issue. It was an issue for decades regarding access to abortion services. And now you're getting it there. But remember a few years ago, Dix intervened to take control of a hospice in Delta Delta that was saying, we're not doing this, right? And he took control of it and, and put it essentially under provincial receivership. So... Uh, I think, you know, they'll they'll give St. Paul's and Providence a chance, but I don't think they're going to get an awful lot of time. I think the province is going to insist on this. province pays the bills. It's the law in Canada, says Dix, and we are in talks with them to resolve this. Well, it's going to be one to keep an eye on. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. 
Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This is Mornings with Simi. Some things come along and all of a sudden you're reading more about them and you're seeing headlines about them and you got to start to wonder what, like, what's going on here? What's happening? I feel like that about our, our next topic, actually. All of a sudden, all this discussion about psychedelics being used in mental health treatment. Obviously, our Scott Chance was wondering the same thing, and he joins us now. So, Scott, you thought, I'm going to take a look at this. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because I definitely have felt that, that it's everywhere lately. I'm really engaged in the mental health conversation because, you know, like so many other people, I have struggled with issues and uh, talked to a doctor and do therapy and taken medication and all of that type of stuff. And sometimes you find yourself wondering, like, what other options are there only to find out that it's like, well, there aren't really other it's, it's options. It's still really limited. Isn't it interesting it when you talk about this wide variety of people and different things that we are struggling with and it's still the same absolutely. kind of medication. Yeah, absolutely. Things like SSRIs, SNRIs. These are like traditional uh, mental health treatments and medications. But now there seems to be like this coming focus on uh, psychedelics and people who have used them are reporting great successes, that type of thing. So I got in touch with Rotem Petranker. He is the director of the Canadian Center for Psychedelics. And I asked him about this, you know, like why are psychedelics, why now are psychedelics starting to be um, more popular and more in sort of the mainstream conversation? My opinion is that um, there has not been meaningful innovation in mental health pretty much since the 70s with the advent of CBT and uh, SSRIs. And specifically, if we look at um, pharmacology, uh, we've had basically the same drugs with, with a few small changes in the last 20 or 30 years. So, And at the same time, we've had an ongoing mental health crisis, and I don't think that's uh, an exaggeration to say that at all. Everyone's saying, wow, maybe we really need something new. And sometimes, you know, the new thing is just something that's been under your nose for a long time. And so I think uh, that's, that's a big chunk of it. How exactly do psychedelics work? And, you know, what's the effect? Because I think for a lot of people, the, like the, the stigma is just like, oh, this is, these are like recreational drugs. But can you speak to that at all? So really, in, in biological terms, we don't quite know yet. We think that uh, serotonin is important, but biologically, we don't really know. Psychologically, the going theory is that uh, our mind is kind of like uh, a mountain range with all these grooves where our mind, kind of, our, our experience, our behavior flows. And so the more we do something, the more the specific grooves become entrenched. We dig deeper as the water goes through it. And then as the metaphor continues, what we do with psychedelics is we can kind of flatten the landscape. And so we can choose new behaviors that are not so entrenched. So in more concrete terms, what this means is if I have an entrenched behavior where I think that I am a loser and that is all my fault, if I use psychedelics, maybe I have a little bit more freedom to say, huh, maybe I'm not a loser. Maybe I can do better for myself. 
where would I even start if I was interested in using something like this, um, you know, to treat my mental health? Right. Yeah, I certainly cannot recommend that anyone uses any illegal substances, of course. Um, but if someone were so inclined, I would for sure start with education uh, because we want to minimize harm. We don't want anyone to use any substance in a way that is not careful. Um, there are a lot of websites online that offer some uh, basic uh, suggestions, and the science is still developing. I think, in a word, the most important things are what's called set and setting. So set is your um, physical environment. You want to pick somewhere where you feel comfortable, where there's no, say, loud and sudden noises. Um, there's no uh, people that you may feel uncomfortable with. Um, really somewhere that you feel good and safe. So at home might be nice, uh, in nature might be nice, uh, but not in crowded places. Um, not, of course not if you need to uh, be responsible, say, driving or taking care of children, uh, nothing like that. And then the other part, setting, is your mental uh, situation. So if people want to use psychedelics, I would advise to only do that when you are feeling calm, uh, when you're not uh, after, say, a big fight with someone or um, any, any type of situation make you feel stressed. Um, and in addition to that is oftentimes after using psychedelics or while using psychedelics, people feel uh, like they have very important insights that are kind of life-changing. Uh, I would really encourage folks to not <laughs> go uh, on whatever decisions that they made while they were uh, under the influence because some of the time uh, the, the urge might be very strong, but in reality, um, it might not be in their best interest. So if you have some kind of an insight under the influence of psychedelics, it's something that's good to sit on and feel and consider and analyze. And if you still feel that way sometime later, weeks later, maybe it's worth uh, actually doing. Hmm. A very, a very measured approach. I appreciate that. So what's, what's next in, in Canada's um, movement towards this? Is this something that we could possibly see like used as a prescription medication in the near future? Or like, are we on the pathway to that? And how do we get there? Really depends on the general public pushing for more funding. So people talking to their um, MPs and MPPs, sending them letters saying, hey, we need more funding. And yeah, if there are studies out there that, like mine, require um, crowdfunding, then yeah, support those people. That's Rodam Petranker. He's the director of the Canadian Centre of Psychedelic Science. I feel like that seems like really hopeful, you know, that this could it, be a, 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 real, a real help. It does feel really hopeful. Also, great name, Canadian Center for Psychedelic Psychedelic Science. <laughs> but I guess people need the hope, though, right? Like he had some good kind of practices, behavioral practices in there too. But people clearly need more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, we need to keep having this conversation because there is still, you know, hey, I'm taking mushrooms for my mental health. But um, I, as someone who's been through some of these journeys, you know, I, it's one of these things where you're willing to try anything 
I was just going to ask you that. Do you think people are more willing to experiment now than perhaps they used to be? I definitely think so. I think that, you know, with the ability to get uh, information from someone like this, who's devoting their life to studying it, as opposed to just, you know, um, a person on the street or uh, the regular Mm. places where we would hear about things like LSD and ketamine and stuff, to find out that people are actually studying it and, and, you know, trying to, to figure this stuff out. I think we know that there is some some real strong potential there. Do you think then that it is a kind of social media internet thing, right? Where you can find your community. You can be like, oh, I can find more information about this now. Whereas before you couldn't. Yeah. It was a very secretive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe that's one of the good sides, one of the upsides of social media. Hmm. You're such a glass half full person, Scott. Uh, yeah. You really are. Like, that's well, good. That's yeah. good. This, this is potentially a really great thing for people who struggle with mental health issues. All right. If people want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Scott, thank you for that. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Here we are, day five that we are entering with the port strike here in BC, and the clamor gets a little louder for for the federal government to do something. We have heard from you know some information we heard Keith Baldry's report earlier that the two sides in this wage-wise are pretty far apart given what the union is asking for versus what the BC maritime employers are willing to provide. Big difference there. So that means this continues if they're talking about what's going on at the bargaining table. Federal government, though, could potentially intervene. There are calls from business groups for them to do exactly that. Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has also called for the use of all available tools, including back-to-work legislation if needed. We're talking about more than 7,000 workers here, right, at ports everywhere, like something like more than 30 ports in total. And what, the disruption of something like half a billion dollars worth of goods on a daily basis. So what does this mean for industrial relations in our province? What can be done? What kind of impact will this have? Well, joining us is Mark Thompson, Professor Emeritus of Industrial Relations at UBC. Mark, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. What do you think about this? Like how big of an impact is this having? Well, longshoring strikes uh, do have an impact on the economy. It takes a while for that to happen, uh, and we're starting into that phase. Uh, but the uh, you know the long term impact is uh, is typically not great, and uh, so uh, everybody would like to have this end, but. So far, uh, doesn't seem to be working. No, no sign of that. So when you say the long-term impact isn't great, why? What happens with that long-term impact? Well, after the strike is over, why you know, everybody works overtime and they make up for the lost time. And uh, uh, there's been research in the United States about that and uh, where you have, you know, a bigger bigger strike just by the nature of, their, of the enterprise. And... Uh, so it has an impact on the economy in the short term, but uh, after a few weeks, it, it all dissipates. And so every, people are very productive when they get back to work. And uh, that's what happens uh, in the longshoring, you know. Uh, right. So I said they work longer hours and, you know, they're very efficient. But when it comes to, you know, say the port's reputation or making increasing productivity or, or making improvements, do that. Do these strikes work in terms of changes happening to supply chains? Well, we haven't had many strikes 
uh, in, in recent years in British Columbia, but uh, the data indicate that the port is quite uh, quite productive, and uh, they're they're making technological changes all the time. Uh, you know, we think of longshoring as being a uh, a kind of manual work, you know, uh, we see in the movies and what have you. But uh, now it's highly uh, mechanized, and uh, there are computers everywhere on the docks, and uh, it's, uh, you know, the the uh, turnaround time for ships, which is uh, crucial to the functioning of of the maritime industry, uh, is very is very quick. And uh, so the improvements are happening all the time, and that that was an issue uh, thirty, forty years ago, but not not anymore. Right, it is changing. People maybe seem to have I don't know misconception about that about how high tech a lot of this port work has become. Yes, uh, it's uh, I I was involved in a dispute years ago and. Well, we went into uh, some of the workplaces, and everybody had a keyboard. <laughs> right. Everything, you know. I mean, it was, it was everything was being tracked. Uh, you know, the you know, containers come off, and uh, you know, you have to know who they belong to and where they're going, and they have to get rooted to a truck and all that. It's complicated, and there's somebody, not too many people, uh, somebody up there in a crane. Uh, picking those things up uh, like they were Lego toys and uh, moving them around. So it's it's very impressive. It is very impressive. It is. And you have to be so incredibly accurate when you consider the, the lifting up and the putting down and the moving pieces around. And I wonder, do you think, when you talk about the general public, do we think about all of that work, Mark, or we think about it when a strike happens? Well, I think most people take it for granted. Uh, you know, when cars come in from Asia, uh, televisions and, you know, luxury foods and things like that and pulp and paper and lumber and minerals uh, go out and, you know, it's all very, very smooth and, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't attract a lot of attention. They, uh, you can't get near the port now because of security. Um, so it's... Uh, you know, they're, after September 11th, they were very concerned about that. So, so it's it's a, a you know a very very well functioning operation uh, most of the time, and uh, this strike is is very unusual given the history of the port of Vancouver. Hmm, interesting. All right, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome, Simi. This is mornings with Simi. You know, it's not very often these days that one of these big tech giants launches a huge new product, but that's actually happening this week. Why is it happening? Well, that's complicated, but it is a fascinating story. So we're going to get our next guest to help us out with that. Matt Navarro is with us now, a social media expert and consultant. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Okay, so why do we have this new product coming from Facebook's parent company, Meta, called Threads? What is going on? 
I think here what's going on is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has finally found a, a timing to fit uh, taking down Twitter because he's always had this kind of desire to, to do something like Twitter and thinks he can do it better. Uh, and now he has a, a perfect opportunity because Twitter's in chaos, it's spiraling, um, and he's got the opportunity with Instagram to tie it together and give people this uh, viable alternative that doesn't exist right now. Okay, for a lot of people, though, Matt, let's be honest, like they read about Twitter. They're not necessarily on Twitter because in terms of social media platforms, it wasn't as widely used as Instagram or Facebook. Exactly. And that's that's very true. But I think one of the things with Twitter is that it had this massive outsized reach and influence on the world in terms of breaking news and like what's happening in, you know, on, and on the web in general. People used to go there or still go there as a sort of central point of discussion online. And I think that um, Meta sees the opportunity with a Instagram, which is what this new Threads app's tied to, to kind of make um, Twitter a better version of Twitter that could possibly appeal to uh, multiple billions of users like many of other platforms that Meta has. Okay, so explain to all of us then, why do we need a better version of Twitter? Well, anyone that's used Twitter recently and is a user of Twitter in general will have probably noticed that it's a little bit crazier than normal. And Elon Musk has got this idea that it should be a free speech platform. And he's made changes to the platform that really have just stirred up the kind of the worst people on the internet, in my personal opinion. Um, and the platform is not what it was for, for journalists. It's not what it was for researchers. And I think for, for the bulk of users, it, it, it's become a, you know, a pretty miserable place to be. And so this old alternative could be good people that are enjoy or used to enjoy Twitter um, a viable option to, to switch to and uh, and it I think personally it will do quite well yeah it's become trash let's be honest because I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was on it strictly for the breaking news and to follow people who did that and read interesting stories that's that's what I was on it for it's actually the only one that I was ever on like in terms of social media but now it's full of I get nothing but ads I get spam. I get for, forced to look at things that I people I don't follow or, or stuff like, and I just wondered like, okay, this is not enjoyable anymore, so I stopped. Um, and so, do you think this new one, this new one from Meta, is going to be viable? I think it is. I think that there is some real opportunity here for um, people who like Twitter or used to like Twitter and want to continue that, you know, that sort of experience with social media, with, you know, text-based social media, essentially, um, to kind of continue that, but through a, a meta platform. Um, I think, you know, there will be community standards, much like Meta's other products, which will hopefully have a base level of what you can and can't do, something that I think Twitter of, of late has lacked. Um, and people will be able to go there and it will feel very familiar to them. I think the reservation that most people will probably flag up is this is another Mark Zuckerberg production. We know what Mark Zuckerberg and Meta is like with our data and data privacy, etc. But I, don't, my, I would say back to that, well, we, we already know this information, but we're all still using Instagram and we're all still doing things on TikTok and all the other social platforms that are much the same with data. So I think that, that, that you know, it's an issue for you. Stop social media. Stop using social media. If not, then I think this is just as good opportunity as any other social app. Okay. Is this a, a viable alternative? Are there any other ones? Because I know many other ones have launched trying to be a viable alternative, right? 
There have. There's been Blue Sky. There's one called T2, um, um, which uh, and Spill. And some of these have been built by ex um, engineers at Twitter. And, and there's no surprise that they look a lot like Twitter because they can see an opportunity themselves. And, and many of them are also what are called decentralized platforms, which you know give people the ability to go on there. And if they don't like a certain algorithm or the rules of that particular part of the platform, they can switch to another one or leave to a different social platform and take their following with them. And but the problem that all of the other Twitter rivals have had is that they you have to start from zero and the people that you like and you were connected to on other platforms they're not there and so it becomes quite quiet and a bit of an echo chamber and that's something that meta has got a real leg up with with uh, connecting it to instagram and i think it's going to make a big difference okay is this not also like just a fight between a couple of billionaires well, they're, they're planning to have a fight in a coliseum, I mean, we all believe. Uh, that's happen, just the dumbest thing. When I heard about that, I thought, really, you guys don't have <laughs> yeah. anything better to do with your time. <laughs> Uh, really, I, yeah, I agree I, I, as to whether it will realistically happen. But, but I think that this is you know, a commercial decision, clearly. And Meta doesn't do things just for the fun of it. They're, they clearly see an opportunity here to build a new social platform that um, it, it's got one that is tackling that is already down and wounded. Um, and as if you look at history of time, um, Mark Zuckerberg has said, I think he's quoted on record as saying that Twitter's executive or Twitter's management are like um, driving it. They were like driving a clown car into a gold mine because they just didn't know what they were doing or didn't know what they had and haven't made the most of it and now he's trying to try and prove that he can and that he can do it better here's the thing about social media companies though matt it, it shows it seems to me that over time what we've seen is that they grow organically and they fill a hole people love it they embrace it they grab it right you can't really launch something and say hey this is going to be the next big thing it doesn't usually work out that way no, for any social media platform to be successful, there's lots of things that can make it happen. One of them is um, like a, what they call a flywheel of content. You know, they get lots of people on there and they start making content. And then those people kind of kind of use that content to make other content. And then it kind of keeps on going and people reshare and, and link to things and it kind of starts building up momentum. But the other main thing is having other people on there that you care about or are interested in, friends, family, work colleagues, or celebrities, whatever. And without that, and without a lot of them there, you're kind of like drawn to other places where they are existing or where there are other people already doing things like TikTok and things. I think Meta is going to have quite a, an advantage here because it's going to connect you to the people you already follow on Instagram and you care about. They will be there or likely to be there. It's the question is, do people stick around? So I think we'll see kind of millions of people use threads in the coming months. The question will be hmm. in six months' time, are they still using it? Okay, I guess so that is the question then for all of us out there in the audience of, uh, is this worth my time? Is this worth my while? Like, am I going to start using this? Yeah, I think people will. I think I think we'll see quite a lot of people switch across. I think there's enough people that are unhappy with Twitter and want something that's like Twitter to use. I think there are people that are always going to be curious about what Meta's doing because it's a big, one of the biggest or the biggest social network out there. Um, so I think people will be drawn to it from that point of view. The question is, um, is it going to have the content they want? Is it going to be interesting? Because for, like you say, a lot of people, Twitter's a bit boring. It's a bit too geeky. I think that Meta will kind of make that experience a bit better for them. And I think there'll be a of a mainstream appeal to this. So I think it's going to do quite well. Oh, we'll see what happens. Matt, thank you. You're welcome. For explaining it so well to us, that is Matt Navarro, who's a social media expert and consultant. You probably saw the stories in the news all this week. This whole fight about Instagram's launching a new product and, you know, it's supposed to replace Twitter. It's called Threads. It's launching later this week. Is it going to, though? It seems to me that when they tell us something's going to be the next big thing, 
Uh, people are a little reluctant to kind of climb on board, but we will see what happens, won't we? People love Instagram and this is going to be kind of seamlessly integrated into that. And I'm going to be very, very closely watching to see what happens with this one in particular. This is Mornings with Simi. Are we entering a post-antibiotic age? Well, the World Health Organization thinks so, but what does that mean exactly? Well, so many of us today have grown up with antibiotics. It feels like, oh, they've always been around, right? And let's face it, we do take them for granted. But increasingly, minor infections are causing much bigger problems because we're losing the ability to fight them because of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So obviously, this is a huge focus of research all over the world. Researchers are trying to find a way to stop this. And there is actually a Canadian study underway using a revolutionary new type of treatment to treat these superbug infections. It's called phage therapy. And one of the people doing promising research on this is a man named Dr. Greg German, who's an infectious disease physician at St. Joseph's Hospital, which is part of Unity Health in Toronto. In fact, he's he's actually presenting some promising results that he's worked on at a worldwide conference right now. Now, our Scott Chance had a chance to catch up to him and ask him about this treatment, starting with the really the most basic question of this is, what is phage therapy? Phage means to eat, and a hundred years ago, a plate of bacteria were eaten by viruses. Uh, just like we have a virus to a cold, uh, there are specific viruses that don't hurt us but do hurt bacteria. Because they made a, a small Swiss cheese-like hole uh, that was uh, Greek for phage, and they now call it a bacterial phage. Okay, I, I think I get it. And how, like, how are we going to use this to treat? Other, like this is what we're, we're this is a potential treatment for other infections is that right absolutely so this is the natural predator to bacteria and uh, it's been used for over a hundred years and it's becoming with centers of, available in many g7 countries it's becoming the way to treat dead end infections that are resistant to everything else or we just can't scrape the bacteria off what needs to be scraped off and the phages will get to the site, they'll multiply at the site, and they'll stay there until the infection is gone. Wow. So this sounds like um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, uh, antibiotics and superbugs and how we've sort of maybe overused those or overprescribed them. And, you know, there was uh, these campaigns like not all bugs need drugs. And it it kind of felt, yeah, like it felt a little scary there. Like, are we going to run out of antibiotics? But this seems like an alternative to that. Definitely. And we're concerned because it's been uh, anticipated by 2050, 50, if we do not take care of ourselves and use antibiotics wisely, and, and over 25% of the time we're not using it wisely, we will run out of antibiotics. And simple things like going to surgery for a simple surgery could lead to a very bad outcome. So phages, bacterial phages, are used as an alternative currently when you have very little to no options left. And you've tried for a year and sometimes 10 years to treat an infection, but you haven't yet tried it with phages. Hmm. So how does it actually work? Like, is it an injection? Is it something that you take orally? How does that, how does that work? So in Georgia, uh, New York, Turkey, as well as in Poland, they usually use oral therapy, sometimes injected into the bladder with a, you know, a urine catheter. 
and uh, sometimes uh, given in other ways topically. Uh, what we're finding more and more in these new phage centers that are coming up across the world is they are purifying it so much that they can give it intravenously. And so like you've used this and, and it's mm -hmm. worked. It's like not, a, it's not theoretical anymore. Like it's, you're using it currently. Yeah, on May 1st, we started a treatment for our one patient, Victoria Marshall, and this was after she had been suffering for seven years with urinary tract infections and seven months without any effective therapy, and she was suffering. And so she started this therapy, and she had an improvement as short as 48 hours. Uh, what did have to take place is approximately two weeks, and uh, it seemed like uh, her improvement wasn't any longer, and we did give antibiotics for two weeks. And what's great and worth sharing and why we say she's a cure is after she stopped the antibiotics, she's been symptom-free for greater than a month, and that's never happened to her before in the seven years. Oh, my gosh. She must be so thrilled. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh you know, she actually experienced her birthday like uh, never before because it was uh, very, um, you know, within the first two weeks of therapy when she was feeling great. And she said this was the best birthday gift ever. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So, like, as, as we progress with this, because it, it really sounds like like the next solution. It sounds like we, we should be doing this. It, it works. Uh, like, are, should we talk about concerns? Like, are there reasons that we haven't delved into this further? Um, wh what's the potential side effects? Like, are, we, are there concerns with this? Reasons that we haven't used it more? Well, it, we're still trying to get to know it in the Canadian sense. The Belgians and the French and many uh, places in the States have a track record of over 50 or 100 cases where they've seen very few, if any, side effects. We go to extraordinary length to show that uh, this is pure and sterile, just like any drug would be. And uh, But that's also a potential barrier. Sometimes we have to go to a certain level of manufacturing process in certain countries, which is uh, the same thing you would do if you were making a million uh, tablets, and that's fairly cost prohibitive. So that's the biggest challenge is we really want this to be personalized medicine, and we have to figure out the right way to produce it and the right way to regulate it. I know when I've um, been sick, sort of had like pneumonia or whatever, I get prescribed antibiotics, pick up a prescription at the pharmacy, and within 24 hours, I start to feel better. Of course, so you know, I finish the cycle of antibiotics and stuff. Is yeah. the treatment that quick with phages or, or will it develop to be that quick? So once the bacteria phage sees the bacteria, it starts working in 28 minutes and where one bacteriophage makes 50 or more bacteriophages. So that's how fast it works. And so you can see uh, effects uh, rapidly. We do have to time the amount of bacteriophages. If you give too much at once, it actually doesn't run down the hill. It just burns out too quickly. So we have to get the levels right and the right uh, different types of bacteriophages. So it's we're gaining more knowledge every single time we have a new trial, but I hope that answers your question. As, as we already mentioned, uh, Victoria felt better within 48 hours. 
That's absolutely amazing, isn't it? That's Dr. Greg German, an infectious disease physician at St. Joseph's Hospital, which is part of Unity Health in Toronto, speaking with our Scott Chance about this really amazing phage therapy that they are using to treat some superbugs. In particular, in their study, which is making worldwide news, it was treating urinary tract infections, which had become antibiotic resistant, which was incredibly difficult and challenging for the people in the study. And apparently they've been getting calls now from other Canadians who want to try this therapy. They said they're now going to test 200 more women with treatment-resistant urinary tract infections, I should say, and they're hoping that they will expand these results. And here's what else I learned about this, which is so interesting, that apparently this phage therapy has been around for something like 100 years. Uh, They actually discovered it around the same time that they were figuring out antibiotics, but they found that these phage therapy was good at controlling outbreaks of dysentery and typhoid plague, but the antibiotics were easier to produce, had a bit more um, you know, widespread effect on it. So they went with the antibiotics and then they went back to it now that we're losing the effectiveness of antibiotics and they're finding that, hey, this still works. This could be hopeful. And that is a good thing for the treatment of so many illnesses out there. Really interesting stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. Um, we'll find out what kind of week it's been. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Um, there were a couple of holidays here, so how busy were the markets this week? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you have a short trading week uh, like this, uh, it's to be expected. Markets are fairly flat today, slightly in the red. But really looking at the first half of the year, the NASDAQ closed out its biggest first half gain since 1983, surging over 30%. The S&P 500 jumped nearly 16% for its best half since 2019. The Dow and the TSX, 6 and 4% uh, for the first half of the year. So everything was, was quite positive. But what's interesting is when you're looking at some of these indices is to really understand where did those gains come from? Because it wasn't across the board. Um, obviously, technology led uh, really six stocks out there, uh, kind of carried the S&P 500 up, uh, some of those being uh, Facebook and Google and um, a few others out there. And so really looking at what brought it up is really important. And it's important to think about active management as well. Um, just thinking about, you know, what sectors do you want to be in? You know, we've got Carnival and Facebook, two of the top performing stocks this year, year to date, um, you know, and taking profits along the way also is important because no sector remains on top forever. Uh, and I think that's important when uh, looking at how this year's performed. And, and also, So, you know, for those that sold out last year, right, some people get nervous and sell out during panic situations, wondering how could the market uh, recover? Well, again, this is showing people and showing investors that markets can uh, recover and be resilient uh, in the face of higher interest rates is, is what we've really seen. Okay, so we've seen some things that are taken off there. Would you say resilient is a good word to use? Yeah, you know, when we take a look at the economy, the economy has been resilient. We see unemployment uh, numbers still very low. Uh, We're going to be getting jobs reports out of both Canada and and the U.S. this Friday. And we see inflation is trending lower. I mean, you look at in Canada, we're at 3.4% year over year. Uh, That was reported for the month of May. Um, And one of the biggest contributors to Canadian inflation has really been mortgage interest rate costs. And that's kind of self-inflicted, right? The Bank of Canada has been raising rates. So they know that's part of the equation. 
But if you strip out mortgage interest rate uh, costs, uh, that component from Canada's CPI, uh, it's really sitting at 2.5% for May. And so that's back within that Bank of Canada range of that 1% to 3%. So their job is kind of done. The idea is is that they could still raise rates another quarter point. Um, In the U.S., again, we're going to be taking a look at the the minutes they're due today. Uh, We're going to find out what was the debate around the pause the last time and and try to shed some light on what's going to happen going forward. There's consensus they could raise another quarter point, uh, but that would be it at that time. So, again... You know, it's always very interesting to see what these central banks are thinking, what they're doing. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, it's important to understand uh, how resilient the economy has been. And, and many companies out there are still thriving in this environment. And that's why you're seeing markets move higher. Okay, so it's so interesting because you're right, that requires, I think, a little bit of an in-depth discussion about what's happening in the markets. And I wonder, are we sometimes reluctant to do that, even with our partners, to have that money discussion? Yeah, you know, I, I'm often sitting across the table from couples, and uh, I will tell you that most do not have the same opinion on money or investments or portfolios. Um, you know, it's important to, to have that third party or that relationship with a financial advisor to really kind of get it out of them, to start talking in front of you, uh, because often people are, aren't having that conversation together. And, you know, it's really important to talk openly with your partner about, you know, your your dreams, your worries, and, and, and again, that makes it easier for a financial advisor because, like I said, often two people are not always on the same page in terms of investments and uh, and goals for retirement and so on. Okay, but you have to learn to do it, though, don't you? It's like a habit that you almost have to get into. It is. And you want to, you know, you want to be casual about it. Um, You know, mention that you'd like to talk about money before dive into hard hitting questions, Uh, you know, to feel how your your partner is responding to what you're saying, I think is important too. Uh, And some of those, uh, you know, really important topics would be, you know, how comfortable uh, are you with with risk, for example, you know, whether that's buying an investment property, whether that's, uh, you know, how you're going to allocate your investment portfolio. You know, there's some people that don't bat an eyelash when uh, markets are, are volatile, where, you know, maybe the other spouse uh, can't sleep at night. And so it's important as an advisor to understand the difference in people, their relationship with money um, and how they communicate about that. Because some people don't even want to admit that they might be uh, anxious about volatility. And so it's important for an advisor to to really hear what people are saying and not just listen uh, to the words that are coming out of their mouth. And again, financial goals, I think this is important, whether it be short term or long term for retirement. Um, you know, what lifestyle do people want to live? Some people spend more. Some people are heavy spenders. Some people are very frugal. And, you know, even though opposites attract, Simi, um, you know, it's important to, you know, understand how opposite they are and, uh, and come to some sort of, uh, you know, resolution to that, uh, have a resolution to that, I should say. Um, you know, if one person spends more than the other, you know, have separate bank accounts, one for spending, you know, as long as, you know, it's within reason and within uh, your budget and your financial plan. And again, having, you know, that kind of discussion on a regular basis too, and, and about retirement. Some people like to travel. Some people don't. Some people like to spend time at their cottage and read a book and others want to, you know, explore Paris and Africa. And my advice to those uh, couples uh, is to really, 
um, take a look at uh, spending time separately sometimes. If you want to go explore Africa on your own, then then go do it. Because sometimes resentment can build if uh, they're not on the same page about retirement goals. Oh, that's a really good point too. So I wonder if it's easier than Lori for them to have their their financial person kind of with them to have those difficult discussions, right? Like maybe a bit of a buffer is needed. Yes, I, I'm often the buffer, I will say. I'll bet you um, are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and even sometimes even having private discussions with one of the spouses, you know, uh, is important uh, on my side. And, and, you know, another one that comes up often is legacy planning, right? So, you know, in terms of uh, children and inheritance, you know, some, uh, some, you know, one spouse may think it's really important uh, to give a whole lot to their children. And the other spouse thinks that they, their children should get minimal <laughs> amounts and, and more towards retirement. And so usually couples are not really talking about that at the dinner table. Right. And so having that third party, having that financial advisor uh, or accountant or whoever you feel, you know, comfortable with to really bring that out of you and have that open conversation because, um, you know, the more you're able to talk to your sp- your spouse, your partner uh, about, you know, financial things, uh, the easier it's going to be for the both of you in the long term. And that's a good thing. All right, Lori, thank you so much for the advice this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great week. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski. Lori is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. And you know what? It's, she's absolutely right. Sometimes you do need that buffer there to have some of those difficult conversations, even with your partner, especially when you're talking about something like money. So you know what? You can contact Lori's team at 604-695-LORI. You can also visit their website at pinkowski.ca.